from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Today, I am so excited to bring you a very special episode of Close to Home. And I am not the only one. In fact, to kick things off and to bring you an important update, I hopped on a call with my dear friend, Nate DePaul. Hello. Hey there. How are you? I am well. It's good to see you. And you as well. So we have a big announcement to make. I'd agree. Do you want me to take it away? Take it away. Absolutely. Uh, I'm Nate. I'm happy to be your new co-host of this program, Close to Home. And I am thrilled about this. I have had it in my head for a good year now that I've wanted to team up with someone who is equally as interested in uh, getting nerdy and diving deep into (laughs) rural upstate New York issues and questions and institutions. And uh, I couldn't think of someone who's more qualified to uh, jump on board with this. So it's so good to have you. I was very excited when you you reached out and asked me to do it. It's been a fun process kind of seeing how you've been running it and and providing my own insight. Um, I think I think we've worked well together so far, so I'm really excited going forward um, just to see where we're going to take it. And you and I have actually done some journalistic work together when we were kids. We have. Um, we are both alumni of a program with the Livingston Manor Free Library uh, called Manor Inc., uh, you were in eighth grade at the time. I was in sixth grade, and we were founding. We were founding members, yeah, um, of that little uh, library-based, student-run newspaper that is still running strong today, which is now uh, like a solid community newspaper. And and I I say that with surprise because I don't think as like a thirteen-year-old and an eleven-year-old and other people right around our age, we we had any idea what we were doing, but. Um, I'm so excited to see Manor Inc. be like a really fruitful and well-written and well-thought-out and highly informative newspaper. Um, So I think it's really cool that we both kind of got to leave our mark on that when we were teenagers. Um, And today, I'm super excited because we get to introduce your inaugural episode on Close to Home. So can you set the scene for us? I absolutely can. Every 10 years, there is a national process that takes about two years uh, to be completed, which is the census, uh, our our national population count, and then the reapportionment process that redetermines all of the legislative lines for houses at every level of government, at the state level, at the federal level, and even down to the local county level. So I had the opportunity to talk to some experts in this field to really kind of unravel the mystery here 
of this um, extremely important process that really uh, directly affects our everyday lives. So who are we starting off hearing from today? The first person we're going to hear from today is Jennifer Reichert, chief of the Decennial Census Management Division in the U.S. Census Bureau. So translate that. What does that mean? That's a really, really great question with a very complicated answer. And I think it would be best to hear that from Jennifer herself. Awesome. Should we play it? I think we should. All right, here it goes. So my name is Jennifer Reichert. I'm chief of the Decennial Census Management Division at the Census Bureau. Uh, So my division is in charge of basically overseeing all of the operations and the conduct of the Decennial Census. Um, So during the 2020 Census, obviously, we were responsible for monitoring all of the operations, um, managing all of the things we had to do in reaction to the COVID pandemic, um, which was a great challenge. Um, This The 2020 Census was my third Census. um, And having been through three, I consider myself an old hand at doing censuses, but 2020 presented um, a lot of new and interesting challenges that even us old guys um, struggled with. Over three censuses that you personally have seen, how has the evolution of technology and kind of this, this we're in this era of big data now, how has that changed um, the way that the Census Bureau collects its data? So I think the biggest um, the biggest change that we saw for the 2020 census obviously was the introduction to the ability to respond to the um, census via the internet. Um, that we've been doing that for our smaller surveys uh, for for several years, but the 2020 census was the first time we were able to do the internet self response, which was a huge boon for the for the program. Um, not only did it enable us to maintain the self response operation throughout the pandemic, which was great. We didn't have a single minute of downtime um, for our self response. Uh, option, but it also just, it made it easier for people to respond. They could respond with or without an ID, which is also another thing that enabled, that the technology enabled us to be able to allow people to respond, um, even if they didn't have their letter, you know, that they received from us. And so it just made it easier for everybody to self-respond anytime, anywhere, right? We, they would see our our website um, on an advertisement or something like that, and they could go right to the website and respond, even if they didn't have their ID. So I think that is the biggest impact of the technology. Uh, on the 2020 census. So the Bureau still does collect data in between the major census years. The American Community Survey, which is one of the sort of prongs of our decennial program, um, has been collecting data um, via the internet since about 2011. So that's one example of one of our surveys that are ongoing outside of the, you know, the zero year. Um, but the ACS, for example, collects all of the what we used to collect as the long form during the census um, until 2010. We always had um, some portion of the country uh, would receive a long form questionnaire, which which collected a lot more information about your households and about the people living in the households. The decennial census no longer collects that in the zero year because the American Community Survey collects it on an ongoing basis um, every month of every year. Um, and they do have an internet um, response option as well, which was a great improvement for that survey too when they implemented it in, in terms of reducing costs and, and making it easier for the respondents to respond. So we've got all this data that's always being constantly collected. And I think one thing that most people notice with census data is that it is incredibly precise. So how do you ensure that such precise numbers are accurate? So the the census is, uh, as as it is defined, it's a census. So it's a little bit different than a survey where survey 
surveys have a lot more error associated with them because of just sampling and stuff. It's not a census. So the census Mm -hmm. has some kinds of error and doesn't have other types of error. Um, Obviously, respondents can still make errors. You know, our our interviewers in the field can still make errors and that kind of thing. So the census is never error free. Um, But we have just a multitude of reviews that we put in place as the data are coming in. I mean, even as you're entering data into the Internet self-response instrument, right? If, I don't know if you did it or if anybody you know did it, but even as you're going through that instrument, occasionally you'll get edits that come up. Like if you, you know, enter data that were inconsistent with each other. I mean, just even at the point of collecting the data, we have checks in there to make sure that the data we're getting are as accurate as possible. Obviously, we're not going to tell somebody that their answer is right or wrong while they're trying to respond to us. But if we see inconsistencies, we can at least point it out to make sure that it wasn't an unintentional um, error and that kind of thing. So even at the point of collection, we're ensuring the accuracy of the data. And then as the data are coming in during collection, we've got, you know, computer programs and people looking at the data almost nonstop reviewing it and making sure we don't see something, you know, that looks odd. Um, and so those are the those are the methods that we put in place during the processing. And then, of course, you know, we do, as you've seen some of our recent releases, we do all of this additional analysis after the census to identify, you know, where there might be coverage errors. So we have our whole post-enumeration survey that does an independent look um, at the census data to identify any coverage, um, co- possible coverage issues. And so those Results have been flowing out uh, since May that have been shedding light on the quality of the census and the accuracy of our data. Demographic analysis is another program that we do, and that was actually done back in um, in 21 when we were finishing the census um, that compares our census data to a separate estimate of population that they do by using administrative records. And so all of those different independent efforts that we do, uh, we do to be as transparent as we can about the accuracy of our data. Um, And it it helps us moving forward too, because wherever we identify there might be coverage issues, um, we will build those lessons learned into our planning for the next census. So uh, all of those efforts contribute to the accuracy. Are those separate counts? how you know that you have a low rate of completion in certain areas is that are those the numbers that you use so when you say like a place like Selwyn county it's like 26 percent of the people so you have an estimate of the population and you can base off of that estimate the amount of people who have yet to complete the census so that when we monitor that in the course of doing the census is actually that we're looking at the data live as they're coming in. So we have our universe, right, of all of the addresses in the United States. That's what we build going into the census is what we build our frame is what we call it, the master address file. Um, and so we on constantly on an ongoing basis as we go through the phases of the census, like self-response is the first phase, right? We give everybody the opportunity to respond on their own. So we're constantly monitoring what percent of the population as a whole for the whole country. And then plus, you know, as we published the map that we had out online ongoing throughout the entire census, you could go in and you could go all the way down to your town and see what your self-response rate was at any given time. Those are live data as they're flowing in um, from the paper responses that people mailed in their questionnaires, from the internet responses, people were able to call in and give their responses over the phone. All of those data were being tracked live. So no, that was not an independent, that was actual live data as the census was being conducted. So how does your completion strategy differ depending on rural and urban environments? Uh, so the census, it was managed in 2020 and has been for the last three that I've been involved in by what we call type of enumeration areas. 
Um, and so these are areas we look at, there's, you know, obviously different areas around the country um, have different uh, characteristics. So certainly in the heavily urban areas, these are people that there's high internet connectivity, right? People are very, I mean, we have, you know, names for them that come from our um, surveys. Um, but so we treat those areas differently based on the characteristics of the area. So in 2020, uh, we had a much different distribution of those types of enumeration areas than we did in 2010, for example, because we found after the 2010 census, this is just one example, but what we found after the 2010 census is that a lot of the areas that we thought we couldn't mail to, and so we sent enumerators out into the field to hand out questionnaires, what we found in our research after 2010 was that a lot of those areas are mailable, right? And they have very good mailing addresses. And so we improved our methods. Um, and so we were able to rely less on having enumerators. However, we still know that there are those places. So seasonal areas are very, uh, a good example of areas where, you know, we know there's occupied housing units there, but the people might not be there when we're, when we're mailing because it's seasonal, right? They might not come until the summer or they were there in the winter. And, um, and so those are good areas where we know we probably want to get boots on the ground and look at the housing unit, see if it's vacant, drop off a questionnaire. Um, another example is very remote areas like remote Alaska. There's some areas in Maine that are very remote. Um, also, a lot of our tribal areas requested that we send enumerators out to actually do interviews with households. Um, so those very remote areas, we know that it's difficult to get mail to them and, and that kind of thing. And it's, and once you, once you're there, it's, it's so it's, uh, what's the, I mean, it is costly, but it's also difficult to get to some of these areas. So once you go there, you want to go there once and be done, right? We don't want to have to keep coming back um, like we do for some of the more urban or suburban areas. And so those areas, we make a special attempt to not only go out there and update our address list, make sure we have everybody, but then we also try to just, you know, nip it in the bud right then, get the interview, right? Talk to the people while we're there so that they can provide their data so that we make sure um, that they get counted in the census. Um, so in 2020, the vast majority of the country was in that group that we could mail materials to. I think 95% of the addresses in the country got mail materials, right? Um, the other 5% are those very remote areas, which is a tiny, tiny percentage of the addresses. It's just really in Alaska and, and Maine and then some of the tribal areas. Um, but the other basically 5% are those areas where we're not sure if the mail is going to get there or maybe they're PO boxes. A lot of these um, semi-rural areas, they don't have like street addresses, right? They don't get their mail at the street address. They get their mail at a post office box. We don't mail to post office boxes because we need the census form to get to the right physical address, right? Um, and so in those areas, we sent out enumerators to deliver packages. And so that's how we treat the, the rural and the urban and the very rural areas separately, is we make sure that we use the best method we can to make sure that everybody who lives in all of those areas has their opportunity to respond, whether it be through a paper questionnaire or you know from a mailing material or from an actual interview with an enumerator. What are some of the strategies you implement in places with historically low rates of completion? So the strategies aren't necessarily different um, for those areas, except for the fact that we treated areas differently based on um, mailing. So if an area was a traditionally low responding area, or like if it's one of those areas that has low internet internet connectivity, we would have maybe sent paper questionnaires in the first mailing. Um, as you know, when we implemented the internet for 2020, one of the things that enabled us to do was to, to drive people to the internet, right? It's a quicker, 
uh, mode of response. And it is also cheaper, right? Because we don't have to process all of the paper and all of that. So one of our objectives for the 2020 census was not only to increase self-response, but to drive people to use the internet, right? That's the, the easiest. It has all of those automated checks in it that you and I were talking about earlier. So we had that additional quality component to, to getting people to respond. However, we know that there are areas that are traditionally responding or traditionally don't respond, um, you know, on on automated surveys. And so a lot of those places would get like a paper questionnaire in that very first mailing. Everybody got a second questionnaire in the fourth mailing. So everybody had the opportunity to respond on paper, even if they didn't respond online. But our primary means for making sure that we get the response in those areas where low response is when we go to our non-response follow-up operation. Um, so that is when we deploy enumerators across the entire country and they go and knock on every door um, six or more times, right? I mean, it, it's relentless. I mean, we really want to make sure that everybody gets counted. So um, we would we would knock on their door six times and we would make sure that we got a, a response from them. If we if there was no way to make contact with the households, we would talk to neighbors, right? We might talk to a mail carrier if you see them walking down the street. Um, landlords, if it's a multi-unit you know multi -unit building, anybody that could give us information about who was living in those households, um, we would get it, but not until we made you know numerous attempts at the household itself to talk to the people who were living there. And then in the end, if we had to, we go to other methods like using administrative records or doing some statistical imputation, but those are very last resort efforts and only apply to a very small percentage. Um, for over 99.9%, .9%, we were able to resolve the, every housing unit in the country, um, either through self-response, which is great, but if not through that non-response follow-up operation. We've talked about how from census to census, you've implemented strategies learned in the last one. Mm -hmm. So here we are in 2022. Have you guys started looking ahead to the 2030 census? And what are the lessons from 2020 that are going to be carried over? Um, so we are just starting our 2030 research program and starting to think about what changes we want might want to make for 2030. I know to most people, 10 years seems like an enormous amount of time. For us, believe it or not, it goes by in a flash. Um, and before we know it, we're gearing up for the next one. Um, but we are taking a lot of lessons from 2020. One of the one of the most foremost lessons on my mind is the need to be flexible. I mean, if COVID did anything, it taught us that we cannot have rigid systems. We cannot have rigid procedures, right? We just, I mean, it's, and I've, before 2020 ever went into production, I have told many people, having been through a couple of censuses before, that if you can imagine it happening, it will happen during a decennial census, right? Um, 2020 just took that to a whole new level with the pandemic and the wildfires and the hurricanes and the, you know, the civil unrest around the country. I mean, it just, it was like a gift that just kept on coming. Um, and we were able to pivot and adjust every single time. And it amazed me because the decennial is a, it's a huge operation. I mean, you know, we like to say at the Census Bureau, it's the single largest peacetime mobilization of people in the country. I mean, it's a huge undertaking. And even though I lived it day to day, it's amazing that we were able to pivot and adjust every time a new challenge um, uh, hit us, whether it was implementing social distancing for our enumerators, it was getting, you know, hundreds of millions of pieces of PPE or personal protection equipment, you know, gloves and masks and hand sanitizer out to our, you know, 500,000 enumerators. Um, we, we did it and we were able to do it. And it was an amazing feat and we're very proud of it, but it did teach us that you have to build that flexibility in, right? You have to expect the unexpected and make sure that your systems and your procedures are flexible to do that. 
Um, another lesson learned that we learned in 2020 is, let's face it, um, you know, virtual is a new thing, right? I mean, people are working from home. You know, we didn't have to have as many offices in 2020 as we did in 2010. I think we think moving forward, we can do a lot more stuff virtually. And so maybe that enables us to, to lessen that footprint out in the field, you know? So these are the types of things we're looking at is can we save cost and we can we make our program more efficient um, by using some of the lessons we did in 2020 as a matter of necessity, right? We all had to go home um, in 2020, but we learned we could do it, right? There were a lot of things that we could do um, from home. And so let's take that lesson forward because it is, you know, it does reduce the cost if you can reduce some of the brick and mortar um, footprint. So those are some of the things we're looking at and moving forward and obviously continuing the use of the technology. You know, internet self-response was incredibly successful for 2020, but can we make it better, right? Can we make it easier for people to enter um, their address information, for example, if they don't have an ID? I know one of our big things is increasing the use of administrative records. I mean, you mentioned early in the interview about big data, right? Data are out there. They're everywhere. Everybody knows their data are out there. Um, of course, we don't want to we don't want to harm any trust with the public, but we also don't want to unnecessarily burden them, right? So we need to find um, what is the right way to use existing data out there so that we don't have to burden the public with responding to the census. What can we do um, with data that are already available? And so we will be looking at that as well to see if we can achieve that nice balance of reducing burden, but still making sure we get accurate um, and timely data um, for the population. So those are the big ones, I think. So first of all, I am fascinated by this conversation that you had with Jennifer. I always knew that the census happened every 10 years, but I feel like I never thought deeply about the inner workings of all of it and the amount of data and manpower that goes in to all of this. That's what's really great about someone like Jennifer, whose job it is to, to think about that. Um, for eight years in between the census. The number that really knocked my socks off was six, that they will knock on every door of a non-responder to the census up to six times or more, she said, to make sure that they can count those people properly and correctly. I honestly found it would probably be an equally engaging conversation to talk to the enumerator sent into the remote parts of Alaska where internet is scarce and there, and mail is almost impossible to deliver, um, to knock on the doors of people who, who are living up in the bush, who, who just would not be reached otherwise, like just the dedication to accuracy. Um, and that, and that was another thread that I think we started to pull on in the interview was how the census absolutely double, triple, quadruple checks all of their data because accuracy is their highest priority. On that topic of data, something that, that Jennifer brought up was striking that balance between not invading people's privacy and taking unnecessary data, but also 
using data to their advantage to make sure that they're getting the most accurate count possible. What were your thoughts in talking to her about that balance? Do you feel like they're they're getting there? And is this something that you're concerned about with data privacy rights? I mean, when she first said that line, I was I was skeptical. I was I was really shocked that a that an agency of the federal government thinks long and hard about um, protecting people's data privacy. But as she explained the process to me, it definitely showed me that even if it's all superficial and and they just do have the data anyway and it doesn't matter, I was I was impressed that it seems that they really do think quite deeply about just how much power they have. And that was something that was probably one of my favorite lines. Uh, that she mentioned was that this is the largest peacetime mobilization in the country. And it's all in the the name of of data collection. When you guys were talking about Sullivan County in the interview, I I went and checked on just that initial self-response statistic for Sullivan County, because you guys had mentioned it was low. And I think this past cycle, it was at 36.7% 36.7% of households in Sullivan County doing that just initial self-response to the census. My understanding had just always been, okay, well, they've only counted whatever it is, in this case, 36.7% of households in Sullivan County. Therefore, they are just flying blind on the rest of the households. And of course, that's not actually the case. That's where those enumerators come in and my guess is that there were a bunch coming to Sullivan County to knock on doors. And at the end of the day, they did eventually get 99.9% of all households in Sullivan County properly counted. That was that was a shocking point to me as well, because I had just assumed that Sullivan County went underrepresented. And it seems as though um, they actually do go beyond. Now, in your other conversation that we're going to hear today, which I'm super excited about because it's about redistricting, which has certainly been an important topic in New York State lately, specifically, and in our region in New York State specifically, because there has been arguments and legal challenges to redistricting leading to all these rather unique uh, election dates and times and whatnot in our region in New York State. What is the connection then between the census and redistricting? Can you kind of set this up? Well, after the population count has been completed, there is a very complicated process, um, a very official algorithmic um, and extremely precise process that determines the number of seats that each state receives um, in their overall federal Congress. And um, there are separate things governing every individual state, including New York. And that extremely complicated process was broken down very, very well um, by Jeffrey Weiss, who is not only an adjunct professor at New York University's law school, but has also served as a longtime counsel to the New York State Legislature, assisting them with almost every redistricting process for almost 40 years. Holy cow. Yeah, he is the expert on New York State redistricting, and it was a pleasure to have spoken with him. Well, without further ado, let's dive into this one then. 
I'm Jeff Weiss. I am a professor and senior fellow at New York Law School based in Manhattan, where I run the, uh, the New York Census and Redistricting Institute. Uh, we provide a nonpartisan resource to all New Yorkers on the census, uh, redistricting, and voting rights issues. Uh, by background, I've worked in the New York legislature for several decades in the Assembly and for the Senate Democrats as a redistricting staffer and counsel. I've worked in a number of um, jurisdictions across the country and uh, in New York State on redistricting, uh, most recently uh, in New York and in, in Syracuse, in Albany County, Dutchess County, Westchester County, New York City. Uh, spent a lot of time working on Census 2020 in Sullivan and Orange County, so I'm familiar with the area. Uh, I'm also the co-editor author of the National Conference of State Legislatures 2020 uh, Redistricting Red Book Handbook, a 300-page uh, a tome that uh, redistricting people use as a guide on the law and the process. Well, starting from the very basics in the beginning, Article 1, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution calls for a census once every 10 years for the major purpose of reallocating congressional districts among the states. And that's called reapportionment. It's the reallocation of 435 congressional districts among the 50 states. And by the 1960s, uh, the courts uh, ruled um, not only do congressional district lines need to be reallocated amongst the states, but also redrawn once every 10 years based on the census. And then also the, the U.S. Supreme Court held that not only do the congressional districts need to be redrawn, but so do state legislatures, county legislatures, city councils, town boards, any representative body that elects um, members by, by district needs to be redrawn to reflect population equality. And that's where we get the doctrine of one person, one vote that each person's vote be equal to every other person's vote. And that by, re by redrawing the district boundaries based on population, my district has the same number of people as your district, let's say. And that's called redistricting. And this all is very important to everybody because the people who represent you in Washington, in Albany, in town boards and city councils, uh, all are elected based on the district lines that are drawn. So if you care about the quality of your government services, you'll want to care about how the lines are drawn that determine who will represent you in one of the levels of government. It's a cornerstone of our democracy. It's critically uh, important and it takes place generally once every 10 years after the census is taken. I, I would say that we in New York uh, definitely do care because over the last decade, we passed uh, a ballot referendum, specifically uh, kind of reshaping how this process went down in New York State. And that very referendum was the kind of the subject at the heart of the court case that ended up uh, causing the, the drama with the lines being thrown out. So could we maybe go through what went down in, in New York? Sure. For, for many decades, uh, if not centuries, uh, New York State redrew its congressional and state legislative district boundaries by simple acts of the legislature, done by the legislature, that the Senate, the Assembly would redraw their own district lines. 
that the two chambers would get together and agree on a congressional plan, and that for many people it was seen as the politicians uh, picking their voters, picking their districts, and not the voters picking their elected officials the other way around. So by 2012, uh, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, threatened to veto uh, the last decade's redistricting plans unless the legislature agreed to create an independent commission. So what happened was the, the legislature agreed and then developed an amendment to create a commission that was designed to advise the legislature to draw initial plans uh, that the legislature would still have the power to approve or change. The voters approved it uh, after the 2012 legislature, and then the next legislature in 2013 approved it, and it became effective for this decade's redistricting. And what happened there was you had a commission of five Democrats, five Republicans, no tiebreaker, the requirement that each of the um, four caucuses in Albany, the Democratic Assembly and Senate and Republican Assembly and Senate, each had two members appointed to the commission, that any plan for Congress or the Senate or the Assembly had to have the support of at least one appointee from the four partisan caucuses, which pretty much guaranteed that you had to have a Republican buy-in since they're now in the minority. And the commission um, amendment also required that the commission developed a first set of plans that would go to the legislature for approval. And then if that plan had been rejected, there'd be the chance to develop a second set of plans. And if the second set was rejected, then the legislature can basically draw its own map. But what happened and what we saw happen this year was that the commission couldn't even agree amongst themselves on a draft plan. So instead they, they issued a draft plan for public comment not a plan for the legislature, but simply for the public to look at. Last September, they had plan A and plan B, a Republican plan and a Democratic plan, competing plans. And that went out for public comment. And then by January, the commission again couldn't agree. So they submitted two sets of maps for Congress and the legislature uh, to the legislature. And those maps were rejected. And then the commission sat down again, but couldn't agree. They claimed they got uh, to reach agreement on 80 or 90 percent of the districts. But if you didn't reach all the districts, uh, it simply imploded and fell apart and they never met again. So at that point, this is late January, early February, the legislature took it upon itself since it had the final power to redistrict to draw the lines itself. And it did that early February, sent it to Governor Hochul. She approved the plan. And the next day, uh, a group of Republican plaintiffs challenged the ability of the legislature to, to even act, and that the congressional plan and the Senate plan were politically gerrymandered to benefit the Democrats. And that went to a state Supreme Court judge in, in Steuben County. You can file suit anywhere in the state. And they basically got, as a result, what they wanted. Uh, the, the trial court in Steuben County, the appellate court sitting in Rochester, and the State Court of Appeals in Albany all agreed that the legislature did not have the power to redistrict because the commission failed to submit a second set of maps to the legislature. That was a critical point. And having failed that uh, effort, 
in the commission, the legislature simply had its hands tied and couldn't act. The, uh, the plaintiffs challenged the congressional plan and the Senate plan, not the assembly plan. The courts held that the congressional plan was drawn to favor Democrats over Republicans and found it to be a partisan gerrymander because the state constitution has in it uh, criteria, population equality, minority voting rights, that districts be compact, that they be contiguous, that they follow or honor communities of interest, existing boundaries, and also not ranked in any priority order, but simply in in, uh, a paragraph with several criteria was that plans shall not be drawn to uh, disadvantage or advantage political parties or candidates. That is the only criteria the court looked at. And based on that, uh, allegedly the the plan would have elected uh, 22 Democrats and only four Republicans. Uh, the courts held that, this, that the, the congressional plan was a partisan gerrymander and ordered it to be redrawn. It did not find the Senate plan to be a partisan gerrymander, but because both plans had been drawn improperly by the legislature, uh, the courts appointed a special master, an outside individual, to draw the maps. Critical is that in this mix is that the assembly plan was not challenged in the in the litigation. So the court didn't have it in front of it, but they said in a footnote, had the assembly been challenged, we would have thrown that plan out too. So if someone brings a new lawsuit, of course, they'll find the assembly plan was just as equally uh, improperly drawn as the Senate and congressional plan. So you know, to get where we are now, a special master was appointed by the Steuben County judge who developed a plan for Congress and the state Senate. And um, because of the delay in that whole process, the primary for Congress and the state Senate will take place uh, next month on August 23rd. The assembly pro- uh, plan not being challenged on paper allowed that primary to take place last month in June. But a subsequent court case was brought against the assembly plan in in New York County, Manhattan State Supreme Court, and a judge there is going to hold a hearing on August 19th to figure out what to do about the assembly plan, redraw it, should I approve the plan that the assembly enacted but didn't have the power to do so? Um, That's an open question. Now, New York State um, did lose a seat in reapportionment, but it was by a very slim margin. New York uh, lost a district by about 89 people. What happens is that there is um, a federal statute that has an algorithm in it that allocates congressional districts based purely on the numbers. And the first 50 districts are allocated one district per state, then districts uh, 51 through 435 are allocated based on this algorithm. And it ended up where seat number 435 went to Minnesota, which had enough people to warrant that seat by 26 people. But had there been a 436th seat, New York would have kept its delegation size at 27, but we fell 89 people short where Minnesota came up 26 people plus. That was basically the size of one New York City subway car full of people causing the state to lose the district. Um, we 
could not go back and redo the count because if you try to adjust New York, you're going to end up adjusting other states. It, what, what's done was done, and it was basically a foolproof computer uh, mechanism formula that determined the outcome. I know that has been a major factor in the balance of power uh, or in the race for it uh, that we're talking about now in the midterms um, as as the Democrats fight to keep their uh, ever slimmer margin uh, in the House. That one seat could make the difference. I'll just mention it's not entirely over yet in court because a group of plaintiffs have a case pending in Albany County State Supreme Court seeking to force the commission to go back to work and send the legislature a second a, a second round congressional plan, something they failed to do back in January. Whether that can happen or not, I think is um, a big question, but there is at least another court case pending to try to you know, pull things back to where it left off in January. And we'll see uh, next month or afterwards what happens to that. I, I do want to bring it down now to our, our lowest level, which is Sullivan County. Uh, at one point, uh, we had been drawn into the 17th district uh, with Westchester. And I, I know it was quite a shock when uh, the sitting Congressman Mondaire Jones was, you know, making appearances all the way up in Sullivan County. And it really confused quite a few people uh, who were living there and, and saw him there. You know, a representative who was not one, but two districts away who kind of felt like this distant figure was all of a sudden campaigning uh, for a primary. Uh, now, that was the state Senate plan. What what was the thinking there? Well, the congressional districts have to contain an equal number of people. Uh, 770 some odd thousand people each. So, uh, in more rural areas, you tend to have larger, you know, land areas that need to be included. But if you're talking about the plan that the state senate drew, I think the courts looked at it as a plan that reached too far in iterations that benefited Democrats over Republicans, and that when you look at uh, the you know the Democratic um, voting bases in the Hudson Valley and the Southern Tier. You're looking to really try to connect a corridor from Poughkeepsie, Kingston to Ithaca. And what falls in between ends up being Orange, Green, Sullivan you know, counties. Bringing things really locally, the Sullivan County Legislature is also redrawing its own lines. And I, I heard this week that there will be a public hearing coming up soon on looking at the county legislature's own lines. So... Uh, this process uh, takes takes time at the at the state at the local level. Um, you know, you, lines are, are were finally approved just this week in Dutchess County across the river, and uh, you know the work will continue. Albany County is still working on their plan, uh, but the uh, the primary next year for local office. Uh, the petitioning gets underway late February or early March. So uh, after all is said and done, redistricting should wrap up by the end of this year so that county boards of elections will be in place to uh, help candidates be, you know, prepare for the petitioning process next winter.
I don't know about you and the rest of our audience, but I found that to be an utterly fascinating conversation, even as I was the one sitting across from him virtually asking the questions. Um, in particular, I mean, just having him kind of demystify the apportionment process at the federal level um, and the extremely complicated algorithm that uh, determines each individual seat by population in the United States. And just really the incredibly, I was really just amazed by the incredibly thin margin um, that New York had lost their 27th seat by. Um, and but and I, I never really understood when people said like, oh, if only 80 more people had filled out the census in New York, we would have kept our seat. But having him explain exactly why that is um, and where it was where it was lost was was really amazing and really just mind blowing. <laughs> Other thing that struck me with a conversation with Jeff that I guess I just hadn't thought about before was that we always keep 435 House of Representative seats in Washington. Never gets bigger than 435, at least not for the foreseeable future. But the U.S. population keeps growing. So every time redistricting happens on the federal level, and we have to keep 435 seats with a larger population, each of those congressional districts has to have more people in it than before. So I think in the previous decade, it was something like 750,000 people in each district. Now it's, Jeff said, around 770,000 people in each district. So it's good that we keep on doing the census and knowing exactly what our population is so we can maybe gerrymandering aside, draw districts as best we can to be as representative and even as we can. But every time we do this redistricting, each individual person, you and I, get a little bit less representation per capita in Congress. That's exactly right. And I was I was upset and really confused when I learned that New York State had actually grown in population over the last 10 years. It's So I was like, well, how can you take a seat away from a place that has grown in population? But yeah, it, it really made sense once Jeff laid it out that no, it's not about population growth. It's about population growth relative to the other 50 states. So if Minnesota had, had grown a little less um, because their last district was the one that beat us out, for the 435th seat, then we would have gotten that seat instead of them, or if we had grown just a little bit more than Minnesota, it, which is still really wild and confusing. Do you feel like the process is as fair as it can be in terms of being the most effectively representative as it can possibly be of the American populace and making sure that everyone does have solid and fair representation in our legislative bodies? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great question. And I, I really think it depends on what you value in terms of your seats. Do you want your seats to be more competitive than not? Do you want them to be grouped um, by region and by shared interests? Mm. Um, do you want them to be grouped po perfectly politically so that the group of people who are mostly Democrats be represented by a Democrat 100% of the time? Or should 
they all have competitive seats. I think that the New York map was drawn for competitiveness, which in in one aspect is is certainly what you could probably call fair, but it, I think it really depends on your definition of of what a non-gerrymandered district is. And I think that we should have a future conversation about gerrymandering in and of itself, because I that seems like a whole nother can of worms that we only scratch the surface of today, really. But in any case, for this topic of redistricting and this topic of the census, I'm so thankful that you did these interviews and had these conversations. They were fascinating. Congratulations on completing your interviews on your first episode of Close to Home. Nate, I'm so happy to have you as a as a partner and collaborator on this project. I'm so excited to see where we go on Close to Home together in the future. It was it was my pleasure to do these interviews. Thank you for allowing me to conduct them because they were fascinating. Um, after starting on such a high note, I am super excited and fired up to get right into the next ones. I, I feel like we can only continue to go up and up from here. Cheers to that. Well, thank you, Nate. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode. I'll see you then. Thank you so much to Jennifer Reichardt and Jeffrey Weiss for lending their time and thoughts to this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, that's Nate DePaul, and we are your co-hosts of Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.